Section 29 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Moat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 20 English Society During the Wars of the Roses, Part 1. From the year 1450 to 1471, from the rising of Jack Cade to the death of Henry VI, a condition of war with a few intervals of peace had been existing in England. This war, which began in protests against the Lancastrian government, ended in a long conflict between two rival houses, Lancaster and York, for the crown. The name Wars of the Roses is an invention of the 16th century. The White Rose of York alone was used as a badge during the actual period of the warfare. Nevertheless, the name is a good one and explains the character of the period. This public and sanguinary struggle between two aristocratic factions could hardly have occurred and certainly could never have continued so long in a settled and well-ordered society. But England had seldom been without some serious disturbances since the accession of the Lancastrian House in 1399. The struggle between York and Lancaster seems scarcely more than a grand and critical instance of the working of causes everywhere potent for harm. A list of riots, feuds, and private wars can without much difficulty be made up to cover the years from 1399 to 1471. Such a condition of society could only exist owing to the lack of a strong hand in justice and police. The government was not equal to its fundamental duty of keeping order. But the weakness of the Lancastrian government is itself difficult to explain. For some reason, the dynasty did not have the confidence of the governing classes of that time, of the nobles and country gentlemen. Yet the Lancastrians were an honorable house, English and of the old royal family, anxious to govern acceptably, careful to observe the constitution and to maintain the liberties and privileges of their subjects. But their constitutionalism must not be exaggerated. The Lancastrian experiment was not a medieval anticipation of the limited monarchy of today. Henry VI, when his period of minority was over, exercised much the same constitutional powers as Edward III. He chose his own ministers against the known wishes of Parliament. The truth, perhaps, is not that constitutional progress had outrun administrative order, for the Constitution was not too advanced for the needs of the age. In one respect at least, in the county franchise, the Lancastrians restricted it. Their weakness has some other cause than their love of freedom. Undoubtedly during the 15th century there was a feeling of lawlessness among the upper classes. This is amply proved by the private wars which families fought with each other, and by the difficulty which was found in every county of enforcing the statutes against livery and maintenance. The country seems to have got into the same condition which William of Newburgh describes three centuries earlier in the reign of Stephen, when there were in England as many kings, or rather tyrants, as there were lords of castles. This lawlessness among the upper classes was probably a reaction from the Hundred Years' War, 
the long intermittent conflict on French soil. After the great days of King Henry V, the English fortunes in France slowly declined. Troops of men, nobles, mercenary captains, common soldiers came back into England, demoralized by long years of bitter warfare, of fighting for their lives and their booty amid an alien people. War was their only occupation. In time of peace, they were out of place. For law, they can have had little respect, and the renewal of fighting was their main chance of success. The fathers and relations of these persons had plundered and destroyed the greatest part of France, and possessed it for several years, and afterwards they turned their swords upon themselves and killed one another. Thus the Hundred Years' War reacted upon England, but fortunately it did not bring with it all the same train of misery. France, it is well known, suffered fearfully in the last stages of the Hundred Years' War. The towns within or near the sphere of operations declined, commerce was seriously diminished, in some places whole trades disappeared. In the country district the conditions of life were terrible, atrocious misery, perpetual insecurity, famine, depopulation, emigration. The forest, the brushwood, the desert had reconquered France. Ten years after the war had ended, Louis XI, traveling from Flanders to Paris, saw, as he said, only ruins, barren and uncultivated fields, a sort of desert. But England fared more happily. She had no foreign enemy on her soil, and the civil tumults, disastrous as they were, did not for a moment set back the solid progress of her people. The population seems not to have declined, nor was the wealth of the country in any way exhausted. With the end of public and private warfare in 1471, the normal life of the people as a whole, which had never been seriously interrupted, went on apace. The barons were a small class, and even small losses and a few battles seriously diminished their number and power. But the commons were the bulk of England, a perpetual corporation in no wise essentially affected by personal or party changes. Yet it is easy to exaggerate the stability of English life during the Wars of the Roses. The general tranquility of the country at large, while feudalism was dashing itself to pieces in battle after battle, was shown by the remarkable fact that justice remained wholly undisturbed, the law court sat quietly at Westminster, the judges rode as of old in circuit, the system of jury trial took more and more its modern form. These statements should not be taken literally. Things do not go on in times of civil war just as in times of peace. The past and letters alone provide overwhelming evidence of the breakdown of the judicial system and of illegal acts in the county of Norfolk. There is plenty of evidence of a similar state of affairs in Devon, in Yorkshire, and elsewhere. The administration of government had broken down, yet the old habits went on and society adjusted itself to the prevailing conditions. There was a lack of governance, but not anarchy. Such is the conclusion that may be come to after a survey of the different ranks and classes during the period. 
The rural classes in the 15th century continued the development which had set in after the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. Looked at broadly, the results of this revolt were twofold. The lords of manors, finding it impossible to compel the vilain to give labor services as rent, ceased to cultivate their demesne or home farms. The vilains were allowed to keep their holdings by paying money rents. Each tenant was given a copy of the conditions of his tenancy as registered in the court rolls of the manor. Thus arose the system of copyhold tenure, by which a tenant obtained a lease of his holding for a certain period, frequently for three lives. About the same time, the lord in many cases turned his cultivated demesne into pasture, on which a few shepherds reared sheep. Thus the granting of copyholds and the enclosing of demesne land for pasturage were two great movements which went on after the peasants' revolt. Enclosures were more or less frequently made of tenant holdings also when the leases had expired. Throughout the greater part of the 15th century, the country people as a whole were in a fairly prosperous condition. The vilains and freeholders were generally left in peaceable possession of their holdings. The great lawyer Littleton, writing in 1475, stated that although many of these people were only tenants at will, yet by the custom of the manor they had a very substantial hold upon their farms. The Lord cannot break the custom which is reasonable in these cases. Villainage as a status was almost extinct. Many of the vilains had become copyholders and are indistinguishable from the general body of free yeomen. Enclosures had made very little progress before 1470. The Lord, as has been already noticed, often turned his demean land into pasturage, but this harmed nobody. Enclosures of common lands or copyholds by the lords of manors were rare. The great period of such enclosures was roughly from 1470 to 1600. This was largely due to the breakup of feudal tenures and the exploitation of nobles' estates on an economic basis. All evidence of the time points to a fair amount of prosperity among the rural classes in this century during the Wars of the Roses. The armies of the time were small, seldom numbering more than 5,000 men. They remained on foot only for a few weeks at a time, dispersing shortly after the conclusion of each important battle. The armies consisted mainly of the retainers of noble lords and a number of knights and squires. The people as a whole took no part in the fights, but they really held the balance of power. Therefore neither Yorkist nor Lancastrian party dared allow much plundering by their army, as unpopularity among the people would instantly ruin their cause. The very apathy of the people, so much noticed by Philippe de Comines, proves that the war caused little distress. If it had, it would have ended sooner, for the peaceful folk, the vast majority of England, would have gone over to the party which seemed most likely to rule with a firm hand. The chronicler of St. Albans, Wedhamstead, shows how the plundering done by the northern men of Queen Margaret's army, when they came south after the Battle of Wakefield, was bitterly resisted and greatly damaged the Lancastrian cause. This plundering is mentioned as an exceptional occurrence. 
During the period of the wars, the price of living in the country districts was not high. Wages were good, and employment does not appear to have been difficult to obtain. The 15th century was a period of prosperity and content. The Wars of the Roses did not affect the country at large. Of the country gentlemen, it is hardly necessary to speak. The past and letters give good evidence of their prosperous state. It is said that the grandfather of John Paston was a plain husbandman, and his grandmother a bondswoman, that is, a woman of vilain parentage. Yet the son, William, of this humble and frugal couple became a judge, and the grandson, John, was a substantial squire in Norfolk. He could afford to educate his sons in the best way, in the Duke of Norfolk's household, at Eton, Oxford, or Cambridge. In the 17th century, in 1679, the representative of the Paston family was created Earl of Yarmouth. This is not the only instance in which prosperous squires of the Wars of the Roses founded great families. The towns of England also advanced in material well-being during this period. It has been observed that no town during the Wars of the Roses ever defended itself against an army. One reason for this was that the armies were not very dangerous. They were small, and the leaders could not risk popularity in the country in general by allowing the troops to plunder. The larger towns were able to take care of themselves. When the troops came into London, the citizens organized themselves to protect their property. But the towns had no wish to stand sieges. For one reason, they did not care enough for the struggle between Lancaster and York. For another, they had no good walls. Since the anarchic reign of King Stephen, the walls of English towns had been neglected, the stones had been used for building, the ditches had been filled up and used as new sites for houses. In the more remote districts, the Welsh march in the north defences were necessary, but elsewhere, especially in the home counties, the disuse of fortifications shows the peacefulness and prosperity of the cities. During the 15th century, the towns took little part in politics. An exceptional case occurs in the year 1450, when Thomas Young, member for Bristol, was imprisoned for proposing in Parliament that the Duke of York be declared heir to the throne. But as a rule, they were sufficiently occupied with developing their trade. The old rigid system was breaking down. The towns were much less isolated from each other than formerly. The mere marching of Lancastrian or Yorkist armies through the country must have done much to extend the habit of intercommunication. Inside the towns, the strict domination by guilds and crafts could not be maintained. By the middle of the 15th century, the merchant guild, which controlled the general conditions of commerce in each chartered borough, seems to have become identified in many places with the mayor and corporation. The craft guilds, which organized the particular trades in each town, had also reached a high stage of development beyond which they showed no tendency to progress. Their rules for the admission of members were strictly enforced. The fees and general expenses of membership were high. The apprentices complained that they were hampered greatly in their efforts to become in time themselves masters. 
the guild and craft system were really growing obsolete, and a steady movement toward freer trade was afoot. The guilds and crafts gradually began to confine themselves mainly to social and charitable functions. At the end of the 15th century, the crown began to interfere with their trade restrictions. The law of Henry VII enacted that all new bylaws of guilds must be submitted to the scrutiny of the Lord Chancellor. Individual enterprise was becoming freer, for the regulations of Crown and Parliament were less hampering than those of the guilds, and thus the closeness of the old connection between the enjoyment of burgher rights and the exercise of a skilled craft tended to disappear. The prosperity of the towns in the 15th century is attested by the magnificence of the domestic architecture of the period, as well as by the sumptuary laws which in the latter half of the century the Parliament thought it necessary to enact. The position of London in the nation was unique by reason of its wealth, situation, and the enterprise of its citizens. The party, Lancastrian or Yorkist, which held London, held the kingdom. It is impossible to ascertain accurately the population of London, but to judge from figures that have been compiled for the beginning of the 15th century, it may be concluded that it had about 50,000 inhabitants. Although this seems small, it was between three and four times the population of any other town in England. York and Bristol, the next largest, had probably about 15,000. Richard of York and his son Edward IV were popular in London. Edward was always a well-known figure there and frequently borrowed money from some rich citizens. He gave London a new charter in 1464 and another in 1467. During the brief restoration of Henry VI in 1470, the right of electing their own mayor was taken from the Londoners. But Edward IV, on his return to power, at once gave the right to the citizen body. His politic alliance with the Duke of Burgundy was another benefit to the city, for it made trade with the wealthy cities of Flanders easy and profitable. That commerce flourished during the period of the Wars of the Roses is proved by the number of foreign merchants who found it worth their while to reside in English towns, chiefly though not entirely in London. These aliens were not popular with the English merchants, as may be seen from the well-known poem, The Libel of English Policy, written in 1436, for it was felt that foreign merchants were given advantages in England which English merchants were not given in foreign parts. As early as 1406, foreign merchants had been prohibited by statute from carrying on retail trade in England but their wholesale trade continued to flourish. In London, the Easterlings, merchants from Hanseatic cities, had their own society with offices and warehouses at the Steel Yard, footnote, on the north bank of the river, on a site in Upper Thames Street, end footnote. Edward IV even risked his popularity by protecting them and continuing their privileges, and in this he showed his wisdom. Henry VII took up his policy with this difference, that the Tudor king took more care to insist upon reciprocal privileges to Englishmen in German markets. End of section 29